And I've ended early so that we can spend a little bit of time interacting and discussing some of these issues. And then we will get around the campfire. So let's uh, see what kind of comments you might have as so, we get yeah. into these. Uh, Nathan, um, so my question was in regard to Romans 13.3, uh, rulers being uh, terror to bad conduct. So when at the federal level, rule, the rulers are not a terror to bad conduct, um, is there room for a doctrine of lesser magistrates or is... Uh, how do we handle that situation? Well, and I think we have a couple of examples. First of all, of course, the question that came even during the time of the American Revolution was a good one, and that is they had to be sort of talked into civil disobedience. If you read the Declaration of Independence, it talks about when there's been a long train of abuses and usurpations, then they felt that there was their duty to respond. Now, in the case of our government, we do have a means of redress. Sometimes people will say, well, I, this is now time for a second American Revolution. Or, you know, some of the people in the militia want to do those kinds of things. But I do believe that there is an opportunity for us to exercise the response to that in the political process. Uh, another probably bigger example a lot of people say is abortion is wrong, so should we do all we can to prevent abortions from taking place. Well, all we can sometimes has led to people bombing abortion clinics, um, maybe destroying abortion clinics, uh, even shooting abortionists. We would not say that because there are means of redress by which we could do that. And so I think that's how I would respond to that whole issue of civil disobedience. I'll let you have a follow-up if you want, but that's kind of how I would deal with it real quickly. And in my book, Christian Ethics in Plain Language, I take you through a little bit of some of the issues of when we would uh, actually exercise civil disobedience. And let's use a good example. Since I use abortion, let's talk about that. There are situations where we, if we have a direct and specific command, which if obeyed would cause us to disobey uh, scriptural principle, would then be where we would have to exercise civil disobedience. For example, let's say you're in a hospital and the nurse is told you have to perform an abortion, otherwise you'll be fired. I think at that point you exercise civil disobedience. That's very different than working in a hospital where an abortion might take place. Does that make sense? And so this is where I think you have to kind of think through what is appropriate as a response in terms of how when we have a government, a leader, or a policy that we would disagree from from a biblical point of view. hope that answers it, but let me take one over here and we'll keep moving. I'm Ken, and uh, my understanding of the Constitution is that it's the legal contract between the voters and the people who are elected. And I believe the oath of office has become a farce. Mm -hmm. And uh, secondly, the, there's, you know, they talk about justices legislating from the bench. And there was a quote in the Wall Street Journal recently by uh, the former president of the American Bar Association. And she said, her name was Paulette Brown, lawyers are responsible for making our society better. And because of our power, we are the standard by which all should aspire. <laughs> and to, to me, that speaks of why some justices believe they should legislate from the bench. Right, yeah. And I think they're lawbreakers. Yeah. 
Well, let me try to respond to that. First of all, the original idea was that you had certain powers which were de delegated to the federal government, and the rest of those powers were reserved to the states and the people. And then even the power to the federal government was divided between an executive branch, a legislative branch, and a judicial branch. And originally, when the justices would actually meet, they were just to interpret whether or not there had been a violation of the Constitution. But over time, that changed dramatically. And, and for those of you that have any kind of philosophical background, it came from the idea of logical positivism. And uh, just as we have this kind of change in how we looked at the Bible, we also then had a change on how we looked at the law, whereas we've uh, moved from an idea of trying to interpret the Bible by what it said by, and what it meant to the founders. In other words, uh, when you go to seminary, you try to study the Greek and the Hebrew, and you try to understand what Paul really intended. Well, that changed in terms of first biblical interpretation, then it happened in legal interpretation, where no longer was it important for some of the justices to try to figure out what did the framers mean when they established those constitutional principles, but instead they would write new law, as you pointed out. And so that happened under people like Christopher Columbus Langdell, who was the dean of Harvard Law School, and Oliver Wendell Holmes, where today lawyers are not really looking, most lawyers and most judges, although there's some exceptions, were not looking at original intent, originalists. And one of those justices who was an originalist just died, Antonin Scalia, and will be replaced, interesting enough, by whoever the next president is. He or she will replace that swing vote. And so that's why today there is less emphasis upon trying to interpret the Constitution by its intent and more of a sociological law. And that's kind of what you have today, where the, whatever five justices say is what the Constitution means. I'd like to return back to what it was supposed to be, but you've got to get the right justices in in order to do that. Good point. I'm going to get a lot of good questions over here today, I can see. <laughs> so I just wanted to follow up on the, the question I asked previously. I, I poorly worded my question. Um, okay. So this may not ever happen in Washington, but uh, in Texas it's a possibility. So uh, with the doctrine of lesser magistrates, so if a, uh, a local uh, authority decides that the federal government's doing something... You're, you're thinking like nullification, things like that, maybe? Or... Yeah, well... Um, yeah. I guess I'm thinking more just uh, the theoretical level, John Calvin's lesser magistrates, right? So, like, as um, our direct uh, leader, we could obey them, but we'd be rebelling against the, right. you know. Mm -hmm. um, so I just wanted your thoughts on... Well, and I think that's something that's being discussed right now. For example, there are two ways to do it, to reestablish the Tenth Amendment, because that gets back to the comment I just made here. Certain powers are federal... Other powers are reserved to the states and the people. So could, for example, the state of Texas, as they're doing right now, say, we disagree with some of the actions that the president has made. We will bring a suit in court so that we obey the lesser magistrate and disobey the greater magistrate. So that would be a way in which you kind of fulfill John Calvin, but also the Tenth Amendment. So I th there are some people talking about that. Of course, there's also the possibility that they could actually add an amendment to the Constitution and that's with uh, Article 5 and actually having a constitutional convention that would do that. So there's some ways that people are talking about actually 
returning some of the responsibility and authority back to the state and local level so that the federal government isn't exceeding its power that wasn't given it to it in the first place by the Constitution. So I hope I'm answering that, but let me take another one over here. Sure. It's Simon here. Hey, Simon. So the, I guess practical question, because you did a great job of outlining how Christians are responsible for both obeying the government, praying for those who are in authority over us. So practically, whoever gets elected this year and, and whoever is in authority over us, we're going to disagree with them probably strongly about things. So can you comment on how you would counsel Christians to render honor to those who are in authority over them? And Good question, yeah. Specifically to the, to the level of how do you express verbally the disagreements that you have with your authorities without contradicting that biblical mandate to render honor to them. Yeah, very good point because, and I think Charles Colson in some of his books have helped us understand that, that you, you certainly honor the office even if the individual in office is sometimes dishonorable. And for an individual like Chuck Colson who had served under Richard Nixon, he had thought through a little bit of that. That is, the presidency is an office that deserves honor even if some of the things that Richard Nixon did were dishonorable. We can use some other examples. Uh, Bill Clinton, uh, for example, uh, impeached president and those kinds of things. And I think that's how we do that. And I think we have to be really careful because we today have this kind of cultural mindset that we just, you know, reject people and authority. And we're teaching a whole generation to just not honor those people because they deserve honor or to make fun of them. And uh, there are just a lot of very important lessons that we can teach our kids about obeying those in authority, honoring those in authority, even if sometimes we disagree with their lifestyle or their character. In the best of all worlds, you'd want to have a, a candidate, and certainly an individual serves in office who has good character, uh, certainly is right on the issues, uh, actually puts the right people in office under him or her. I wish we could get three out of three. We're lucky if we get one out of three sometimes with some of the candidates. That's just the way it is. But we should still show honor uh, to those offices because, as I tried to explain, Romans 13 says that this was a divinely ordained and instituted institution, just like the church and the family. And uh, sometimes we haven't thought about how we need to recognize our responsibility towards government. Easier for us in America. Can you imagine what it's like right now to be a Christian in a Muslim world or a Christian in a communist world and to try to show any kind of honor towards those leaders who in many cases are violating you know, biblical principles all the time? That's difficult. Easy to say, difficult to do. Over here. Um, my name is Dharmadi. Um, not sure if you touched on this before or not, but... Could you actually be specific and talk about the two candidates that we have today for president? <laughs> it would be a good. Do so. It will be a good, uh, I guess, material for us to talk about at campfire later on, yeah. right? Talk about their, you know, the way you think about those two guys, those two persons, yeah. and then the repercussion if one of them get elected. Right. The potential Certainly. repercussions. Yeah, and there are repercussions. First of all, recognize that you, you probably are also electing a slate. So when you look at Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, it's good to look down the slate and recognize that you're putting an entire group of people into that office. But let's look at that. You know, Hillary Clinton, I, I, I can't tell you anything you don't already know in terms of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. But maybe what you don't know is look at the next in line. Um, Tim Kaine, 
who is the running mate with Hillary Clinton, has received a 100% voting record on issues like abortion, uh, supports same-sex marriage. You can go down the list and recognize on a lot of the issues we've talked about this weekend, whether it's Hillary Clinton or Tim Kaine, pretty much disagree with us on almost every issue. Donald Trump, he's all over the map. I don't know where he is some days. But what about, you know, Mike Pence? I happen to know Mike Pence. Mike Pence actually started out in a think tank. You know, Probe is a think tank. He used to be a talk show host, radio talk show host. He's been on our show. We've been on his show. Uh, then was a member of Congress and then has been the governor of Indiana. You know, on all the issues you would want to talk about, pro-life, family, you know, Second Amendment, you go down the list, uh, taxes, I mean, just a very quality individual, both in terms of his character and in terms of where he stands. Now, who are the kind of people they're going to put in office? Let's think that through for just a minute. Um, we talked about the Supreme Court. Well, Donald Trump's made it very clear that he has selected 11 different candidates that he would look at for the Supreme Court. One of my uh, people that comes on our program every Friday, Kelly Shackelford, we went down and looked at all 11 of those individuals and concluded that at least nine of the 11 were really good candidates on all sorts of issues, and the other two were pretty good. And I know some of those. One of those candidates that he put on the list is an individual that is a judge in the state of Texas. One of the ones that we're saying good but not great is actually a judge in Alabama. We know him as well. Well, if indeed those are the kind of people he's going to put in the court, they're going to actually be those originalists we were talking about. Those are individuals that are going to take, you know, a stance that we would probably agree with from a biblical point of view. Hillary Clinton hasn't given us that list, but we have a pretty good idea what they would look like because of the uh, people that she probably would keep into the office. Um, for example, I think Loretta Lynch will stay in the Attorney General's office. Donald Trump might put Rudy Giuliani there. So you can do all sorts of comparisons all the way down the list and see there are some real differences. You know, in 1968, George Wallace said there's not a worth of difference between a Republican and a Democrat. I'm not so sure that was true then, um, but it may have been more true then, but it's not true now because another way to think about that is look at the Republican platform, look at the Democratic platform. What does the Democratic platform look like? It is more liberal than it was four years ago. Again, don't take my word for it. William Galston, writing in the Wall Street Journal, we mentioned the Wall Street Journal just a minute ago, who served in the Clinton administration, said, this is the most liberal, progressive platform Democrats have ever produced. Why? Because Bernie Sanders' delegates really pushed it in that direction. On the Republican side, it's as conservative, maybe a little more conservative than it was in 2012. So you have stark differences. And if you want to go to pointofview.net, we have both platforms. I even have an article coming out where we analyze those. And so it tells you a little bit about who's going to be in those positions. Now, if indeed we want to think about some of those Supreme Court decisions, imagine if they put in an individual, maybe Hillary Clinton puts in somebody that looks like um, Stephen Breyer or Ginsburg or somebody like that or Elaine Kagan, whoever that might be. Uh, then that fifth vote is going to go the other direction. Now, if you look at the Supreme Court decisions, almost all the really important ones have all been 5-4 splits. The Hobby Lobby case about First Amendment, that was a 5-4 decision. Uh, the Heller case out of Washington, D.C., or uh, the McDonald case out of Chicago on a Second Amendment, those were both 5-4 decisions. The last time the Supreme Court ruled on partial birth abortion, that was a 5-4 decision. Well, it's pretty easy to see that that five is going to go the other direction. 
if indeed you get a conservative justice in there who's similar to Antonin Scalia, and I think the next, the next president's going to have probably three appointments, you can see that the next uh, president is going to determine where the court's going to go for the next generation easily. And so those are some quick looks at some of those issues. But more importantly, look at the platform, because the platform gets hammered out by all the delegates, oftentimes by people that will serve in that administration. And that tells you what each particular party would want to do. And you're not just electing, because, you know, when we look at these two candidates, it reminds me a little bit. Remember when you used to choose up people playing kickball or basketball, and you choose them all up, and you got two left, and you're going... We don't want either of them, right? <laughs> the bad news is, is one of those is going to be the captain of your team. <laughs> and so we don't like the people at the top. I think most of, and maybe there's a few of you are thrilled about it, but not most Americans right now are going, I don't like either of these choices. But look beyond that and look who their vice presidential nominees are, look at who they would put on the court, look who they'd put in the administration, and there's some stark differences there to think about as well. Hi, I'm Peter. Um you had a uh, slide that says, well, for those in authority. Does that mean that once they're in office, we should continue to support them? Uh, also, a related question, do you support term limits for, for people that you don't like? Sure. Uh, first of all, we, uh, as a matter of fact, I did kind of have one slide there to talk about that we should not only um, serve in jury, but we should also tell our ele elected representatives how we stand. So we're, while we can support the office, we can disagree strongly with where our representatives are. And if our representatives are not representing us effectively, we can give them a pink slip. That's going to happen in November. November 8th is a great opportunity to send some of them packing if you want to. So I think that is the case. Certainly we pray for those in authority, but we don't have to always agree with those in authority. And even supporting them, we might actually disagree dramatically with some of the actions they take. What about term limits? I think term limits would make sense if they were long enough. The problem is you find that um, really being president or even especially being a member of Congress, it's not an entry-level position. There's a, there's a kind of a learning curve that you have to go through. And so some of these people saying, well, a six-year or even a 12-year limit for, you know, two terms for the U.S. Senate, I don't know, that's a little tough. But if you had a little bit longer, I think that would be the case. I think term limits might make sense. Uh, because what we find right now, and the reason people argue for term limits are that because we gerrymander so many of these congressional districts, you're more, you are actually more likely to have lost a place in the Russian Politburo, in the Soviet Politburo, than to have lost an election if you're an incumbent. And even though we keep talking about throwing the... Uh, uh, rascals out. The reality is that when it comes to the United States Congress, the members of Congress choose their voters, whereas at least in the Senate, the voters choose their senators because we so gerrymander some of these districts. And I've seen a few of them here in the state of Washington, so just go look at the, the map of the congressional districts. You can see how we've gerrymandered it so that we make them safe districts. And that's why I think it's important to consider uh, term limits. But that gets us back to one of the things I mentioned a minute ago, Article 5. Do you think Congress is going to term limit itself? No. But some say maybe an Article 5 constitutional convention might implement something like that in the future.
Andrew. Okay, I'm yeah. Andrew. I have quite a few questions about politics, so I'm just going to shoot them. So you, you can shoot feel free to, or shoot me, whatever. <laughs> you can feel free to answer whatever. I'm um, going back to the um, well. In terms of the, being conservative, we can talk certainly talk about political conservative, but they're usually also morally conservative. And unfortunately, the way society is going, morally conservative is very, very few now. I mean, that's very true. So I mean, is there any hope for the conservative party or the Republican? Yeah. And 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 another question. I've been asking people this, but I don't have never gotten a satisfactory answer. I mean, in this day and age, why do we still have the Electoral College? I mean, this is not a biblical question, but I mean, it really comes down to a handful of states that really matter. We've been in Washington. Why do I care to vote? It doesn't matter. <laughs> Good point. Now, first of all, I, I'll give you some hope, because again, Suzanne says, I've got to give some hope here. Or everybody's going <laughs> to... Pretty soon everybody's going to be looking for tall buildings to jump off if I get any worse. Uh, I do have a chance each year to interact with a lot of kind of the, the, if you will, the farm team, those that are serving in the state legislative areas. Now, I can't speak for Olympia, but I can speak for Austin. And I'm seeing just a lot of really uh, smart, articulate Christians that have taken the time to learn this process and kind of rise in the system. So I think we might be able to, in some places, see some more of the Mike Pence's and others that I'd love to see in office. So I'm encouraged in that regard, and I'm seeing a remarkable difference because what you're seeing is in some places people are just business as usual, and if it's a one-party uh, kind of system, then you don't have that. But when you have an opportunity for people to really be able to make the case for liberty and make the case for stand on moral issues, I still see a number of those, so I'm not as discouraged yet as might be. Why the Electoral College? Well, it made a good deal of sense in the 18th century because, on the one hand, you didn't want to just always elect people on the popular vote because then they would just go to New York City, they go to Philadelphia, and, the, and even to this day, if indeed it was only the popular vote, it would uh, for, just pretty much say, well, we'll just go to the major population centers, Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, whatever it might be. And so on paper, it makes a great deal of sense because it forces candidates to go to other states and to actually campaign. The reality, though, is, is that over the last six elections, there is almost a competitive advantage that is given to the Democratic Party. That is, if you look at the fact that there are 18 states, and these are in many cases big states, that have traditionally voted Democratic. And you know which ones those are. It's all the West Coast, California, Oregon, Washington. It's the Northeast, except New Hampshire. And it's part of the upper Midwest, like Minnesota and Wisconsin. Those always vote Democratic. Then the Midwest and the South usually vote Republican. So it gets down to a handful of states. And it's really just even smaller than that because most of those people have made up their minds. So it's a smaller group. It's, a, it's kind of the moderates or the undecideds in those few states. Iowa, sometimes Pennsylvania, rarely though, Virginia, and then especially, of course, Florida and Ohio. Sometimes you add in there New Mexico and Colorado. But if you look at some of those swing states, you can get it down to about three or four, which means about 300,000 people in America will determine who the next president is. Well, in some respects, do we want to get rid of it? Well, some states are already starting to say now they have implemented a rule that says that if indeed the popular vote disagrees with the electoral college vote, that those electors that go to their state capital will vote the popular vote. New Jersey and others have done that. So we're sort of moving away from that, not from a national level, but because individual states are sort of moving that way. 
So that's my quick answer to a question that maybe you've never had answered before, and I probably told you more than you wanted to know, but there are more and more states that are actually changing their rules for the electors that go to the state that actually cast their vote. So we're moving towards a popular vote anyway. Probably more of you heard, have heard about government than you wanted to know, but anyway. Yes? Why don't the political parties vet their candidates? How do the political parties vet the candidates? Why don't they? Why don't they vet the candidates? Well, take Hillary Clinton. Uh, yeah. She's a national security risk. Yeah. There's no way she qualifies for <laughs> security clearance. How well, and I, I think you are honest. There's, if, she, if she were not the presidential candidate, some people do wonder whether or not she would qualify for a security clearance. So. And um, <laughs> that's just the way it is. Uh, you know, the vetting is supposed to take place in the primaries. And some of the vetting, and a lot of people said, how do we end up with Donald Trump? Well, you know, there were, interestingly enough, how did you end up with Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump? If you go back and look at the numbers, 9% of America determined who they are going to have as our candidates because most people don't vote. And you matter of fact, in the last election, in the 2012 election, there were 39 million born-again Christians who did not vote. I know that for a fact, because George Barna went back and asked the question, you know, if you had a born-again experience, and uh, we know how many there were, there are 39 million born-again Christians who did not vote in the last election. It was 26 million who were registered to vote who did not vote, and there were 13 million born-again Christians that were not even registered to vote. So if you want to use a football analogy, since it's Seahawks season, right, you have uh, 26 that are sitting on the bench, not even going to go out in the field, and 13 are still back in the locker room. And uh, then we wonder why our country is where it is. Um, we, as a demographic group, as born-again Christians, have a much lower percentage of being registered to vote and voting. Anybody want to guess which group has the highest percentage of being registered to vote and voting? Homosexuality, homosexuals. Two percent of the population has brought about a lot of the change here that we've seen in America. If we've ever got serious about our civic duty, you could see how some of that might change, at least in certain places in the country. Something to think about. Okay, one more. Anybody, last taker? We've got a lot more campfire conversation. We can do that. Thank you. Let's just so, do it around the campfire, okay? All right. Thank okay. you very much. Thank you. Let's give him a round of applause.